Welcome one and all to Vision on Sound here on Fab Radio International with me, Martin Holmes. This week we welcome back Lisa and Andrew, the genial co-hosts of the Round the Archives podcast, who have appeared separately on the show before, but I think this is the first time I've spoken to both of them together. They got in touch because they wanted to talk about yet another detective series, one that had passed through our roadblocks recently, which took its source material from the detective literature that was around at about the time Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was working on his Sherlock Holmes stories. This was a series from Thames Television called The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, and as they are huge fans of this show, we might as well set our time engines for the late Victorian slash Edwardian eras and see what games are afoot. Hello Andrew, hello Lisa, it's nice to have you back. So today we're going to uh, look uh, into detective fiction again, we seem to be talking a lot about detective fiction, but uh, you're going to be looking at another side of detective fiction you are introducing us to a series would you like to introduce it yourselves i can't do it properly you you have to do it fruitily <laughs> the rivals of sherlock ah, the rivals the rivals of sherlock the rivals. Fair enough. and this was a thames television series yes thames television 1971 and 1973 ah, two series they have form of skipping a year don't they i think they did the first series mm. and it went down quite well so they commissioned the second ah. series so but obviously it took time for them to write the episodes and fi- um, record the episodes mm-hmm. so it's yeah it's about just over a year these are 13 episode seasons aren't they so there's, there's... 13 episodes seasons yes and it's basically um little known or, or little remembered detectives that people were writing at the same time as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was writing Sherlock Holmes. Mm. Well, I'm interested, Martin, because you know your detectives. Well, a little bit. Quite a, little a bit. bit yeah. you, know, you know a bit. And you've seen The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. I have, Holmes. yes. And I just wonder how many of these detectives had you actually heard of before? Before watching it? No, I, I suspect that uh, the series was one that introduced a lot to me. There is a series of books, is it the New English Library or the English British Library editions of authors from that era who have sort of been forgotten about. I'd heard of Karnaki because there's a quite nice uh, Big Finish adaptation, well, reading of them by uh, Dan Starkey. I picked up cheap because <laughs> i always wait till i can pick things up cheap because that's how mean i am but uh one or two of them had, had cropped up in conversation at home and what's his name professor van dusen van dusen yeah. van dusen crops up in a couple i've got a couple of anthologies of locked room mysteries and that sort of thing and he seems to be the quintessential locked room mystery character or at least some of the fundamental locked room mysteries feature mm. Professor Van Dusen. So I had heard of him, but very few of the rest, really. Well, I, I think he comes across almost as like, you know, comedy playhouse mm. would act almost as a set of pilots yes. for comedy series. Mm. You almost get the feeling that this Rivals of Sherlock Holmes could act as a pilot for a series 
starring each and every one of these detectives. Oh, very much yeah, so. Some more than others. Yeah. No, very much so. There's uh, about a dozen, isn't there? Doesn't one make a comeback in the series? You get two Martin Hewitt stories, right. which is Peter Barkworth in the first series, and you get two Professor Van Dusen stories in the second right. series, just because I think they thought Douglas Wimble was so good. Mm. Uh, and Peter Vaughan comes back oh, as well Vaughan, as yes. Dorrington. As, right. as Horace Dorrington. Right. Yes. So basically over the course of this 26, you probably could, there's like 22 potential series in there. That, ne- yeah. that yeah. never actually happened, and do we do we feel that's a, a bit of a, a loss before we start? Do we do we feel that they're all pilot worthy, or or do you feel that some of them are better than yeah. others? I, I think there are a few that possibly aren't as memorable. I mean, the anonymous letters from series two, mm. which is I don't think that's actually in print over here, but that's yeah, that's set in Russia, I think, mm. and that's possibly not got quite so much of a potential. But things like obviously. Karnaki mm. has got. I mean, you you absolutely have loved to see more Karnaki, mm. wouldn't you? More Donald Pleasance. Ah. Well, it, it it's edging towards sapphire and steel, isn't it? <laughs> and anything that edges towards sapphire and steel is right. good in my book. Mm. So perhaps we should start at the beginning, really, shouldn't we? And... Yeah, if, if we if we go through them in order, yeah, we kick off with a message from the deep sea. Right. When a girl is found with her throat cut, Doctor Thorndyke discovers a vital clue that the police have overlooked. Right. With John Neville, James Cossins and Bernard Archard. And Paul Darrow. And Paul Darrow. Mm. September 1971, uh, written by Philip Mackey. Mm-hmm. We should talk about Philip Mackey. Oh, Philip Mackey's always great. Um, from yeah. an original story by R. Austin Freeman. Right. Mm. So is it fair to say this is slightly more standard than it gets yes. later? This is the one to start you off mm. that's not going to scare you off. Mm. Yeah. Because some of the later ones... Bonkers. Or a little bit bonkers. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and also, I think this this character, Dr. Thorndyke, is the most Sherlock Holmes-like in the fact the stories are narrated by... Yeah, his assistant. Right, anyway. yes. So it's, 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 it's effectively like Dr. Watson yeah. narrating the Sherlock Holmes story. Yeah, so this is a, a writer working around about the time of Conan Doyle who's basically knocking him off a bit. Yeah, yeah. Or possibly the other way around. I'm not right. sure who came first, okay. to be honest. Well, I do, so. I do wonder about this. Mm. That is, is this like a big circle of writers that all vaguely know each oh, other? Oh, all met in a room somewhere. Uh, yeah. I, ju- I just wonder how much everybody sort of knows what everybody well, else sort of cross-pollination. I suspect it's actually more to do with the magazines or publications that they were bringing in. We want something a bit like that. Is basically, which of course mm. is how television works, isn't it? Mm. Quite often we say, "Oh, but that, they've got a success. We want something that does that and hits the same beats." It's not an unusual situation in publishing, in broadcasting, in all sorts of things. We want something a bit similar to that. And also, some of these stories were serialised in various magazines, including the Strand. Mm. So they are actually really contemporary with. Sherlock Holmes and Conan Doyle. Yeah, I mean, we should say that to get them on television, some of these stories have been heavily script edited. Yes. Sometimes for the better. <laughs> yes. yes. There's one particular story which we'll talk about later that very much benefits from heavily being script edited. Yeah. But again, I, I read it the other day and went, oh, oh, yeah, no, you couldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> but then again, you know, Sherlock Holmes himself has to be edited quite significantly to 
for some of the short stories to work as television. I mean, quite a few of the stories in uh, Conan Doyle, they don't even leave the rooms, do they? So that's not very televisual. It's not bad for radio, but it's a bit difficult to make an adaptation. But if we jump on to the mm. next one, yeah. then we start down the road of making it a bit unusual. Okay. Yeah. As we have The Missing Witness Sensation, mm-hmm. starring Robert Stevens and George A. Cooper, mm-hmm. another Philip Mackey adaptation mm-hmm. from an original story by Ernest Brahma. Blind private detective Max Carrados discovers vital evidence wow. when a young post office clerk is gunned down at a counter. Wow. But a blind man seems an easy target to a gang of desperate men. Mm. So, blind detective. Now, that's interesting, yes. isn't it? Because, again, in America, we get uh, Longstreet in the 70s. So... You know, and we get Daredevil, of course, in the modern age, you know, in the comics as well. Yes. So the idea of someone with that, you know, one of those faculties that someone like Sherlock Holmes actually, you know, depends on the observation, having the observational skills not available to them is actually quite fascinating in literature in, in and of itself. Mm-hmm. I, I absolutely adore this story. Mm-hmm. And I think it's purely because of Robert Stevens. Right. Because when I have read the story because we've got the rise of Sherlock Holmes both in book form right. and ebook form and I have bought some of the short story volumes as well yes. and Max Carados in the books is he's not unlikable but he's a little bit vain and a little bit he's very sure of himself yes. and Robert Stevens is very charming mm. in when he does that I mean, Robert Stevens is a marvellous actor he's absolutely wonderful in the Box of Delights mm. so he just I think he carries it mm. really this story I, mean, I would love to have seen more. Yeah, It is interesting when it comes to these things, isn't it? Casting has a great deal of influence on how much you enjoy a character. You know, there's, there's rarely been a miscast Holmes, for example. But when it doesn't work, it really, really doesn't work. You know, so I'm trying to think the John Neville one isn't isn't he played by a different actor in the second series the same character yeah in the second series he's played by Barry Ingham right and do we feel that because that's one of the few situations where you actually get to compare and contrast isn't it you know two different performances in the same well in the same series in that sense yeah performances of a a character and we just kind of think do you have a preference for for which one of those I think I like John Neville right Mm. of the two yeah I'm not sure Barry Ingham makes as much of an impression mm. as John Neville. Is that just because you saw him first? Possibly, mm. yeah. And I think Barry Ingham is maybe channeling Sherlock Holmes yeah. too much. Because right. I should say that we didn't actually watch these in order when we first no. got them. No. We jumped about we depending on the, what the description of the episode yeah, was. I think we started with Horse and the Invisible yeah. and, and worked backwards. Yeah. What was it that drew you to particular episodes over others? Let's face it, some of us, we just pick up a DVD, we watch episode one, we watch episode two, we watch episode three, but you've obviously got a more a more eclectic way of looking at things, and I was just wondering what it was that, <laughs> what it was. Was it, is it particular actors? Is it particular setups? Is it particular descriptions or particular characters that you, you were hoping to see? Or is it just, hmm, that sounds interesting because it's got this person in it? Or I literally think it was just that it's, this one sounds interesting, right, so yeah, we'll start yeah. with this one. Because all you get is a two-line description yeah. and some actors' names. Right. And you think, well, you form an image in your head. So how do you know for sure you've seen them all? Oh, we do. Oh, we've seen right. them all. <laughs> no, I just wonder, I mean, do you, do you suddenly think, yeah. oh, have we seen that one or, or, or not? When you go through them sort of randomly. Because I sometimes put a disc in and think, I forget I've seen all the episodes on that one. I need to get wait that five minutes and get the next disc, if you see what I mean. I actually sometimes lose track of where I am with a series. So that's kind of... You, and what I'm saying is, when you did this rewatch that you've done recently, did you accidentally find one that you'd never seen before? No. 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 <laughs> not that we'd not seen. Ones that we didn't remember. Because ah. 
particularly we watched when we get onto it the second Professor Van Dusen one. Mm, yeah. We watched that last night, and we got to a certain point in the episode, and I went, "Oh, I've forgotten this happens." <laughs> because a very it's, silly moment. It's so unexpected. Right. Fair but as soon as we, I saw it, I went, oh, yeah, I remember this now. Yeah. yeah. But ep- episode three, mm-hmm. The Affair of the Avalanche Bicycle and Attire Company Limited. Oh. There's a now, title for you. This, this is the first Horace Dorrington one. Right. Yeah, played by Peter Vaughan. Who's absolutely superb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's a dodgy detective, isn't he? He is a dodgy <laughs> detective. It's Peter Vaughan playing to type again. Right. But he's not a very nice person, is he? No. And actually, this is quite a nasty story. Because, and this is going to be a spoiler, because mm-hmm. I'm sorry, there are going to be spoilers of this. No, season. it happens, don't worry. They're nearly 50 years old. If you've not watched <laughs> it yet, then <laughs> get, get a shift on. Because <laughs> um, he actually murders somebody, doesn't he? Yeah. In this one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this uh, one of those things they used to say, I mean, even when we were talking about the Sweeney a few weeks ago with Warren, you know, the connection between criminals and coppers. They have to have similar mindset. I mean, again, getting back to Sherlock Holmes. People always said that he, he he could have been a master criminal if he'd chosen to go down that path. So this is presumably just an extension of what could happen if you went down that path. I mean, again, you bring that on into the modern era, you've got something like Dexter, who's a serial killer who helps the police, or even Lucifer, who is, is the devil and helps the police. You know? Isn't this the one where he's having a bit of a sweating competition oh, with John Stratton? Oh, John Stratton. Yeah, John, I mean, that, you know, I was just looking up. I was remembering John Stratton dripping like a tap. Yeah. And I was trying to think whether it was actually in Rivals or not. And there he was. <laughs> yeah, the pair of them are sweating like crazy. Yeah, and I think it's just the, the production, isn't it? Yeah. It's, because this is all studio production for, yeah, the, must for be the most part. really hot in there. Mm, yeah. You can feel the pressure on the actors. Yeah. So you've got to have good people in this mm. in this show just to stand up to, oh, to, to, to making it. it well, this is a studio show, isn't it? This is a... Uh, yeah. It's, it's shot multi-camera in studio. So th- basically your actors are giving it their all and every, every move they make is potentially going to appear. So that, the pressure of that, it must be absolutely astonishing. And... Studio lights back then, not the coolest of things, I believe. Shall we jump on to the Duchess well, of Wiltshire's Diamonds? Oh, this one. I love this one. The first time we watched this one. Mm-hmm. God, yes. Because <laughs> the character you initially see, Simon Khan, who is not a detective. Mm-hmm. This is a very loose one for, for detectives. Right. This is Roy Detrice. It's Roy Detrice. There is a detective in it, yes. but yeah. he's not the main focus of the story. Okay. Yeah. Because the character he plays, Ryder Tree, Simon Khan, has a hunchback. Ah. I have to admit, we were slightly giggly about that for some reason. Until you get to just before the first advert break, when he takes it off. Ah. Because he hasn't got a hunchback. Well, he's helped off with it by he's, his manservant, yes, isn't he? He's John Nettleton. Yeah. And basically, I've read this story and an, another story, Simon Khan, and... He's a sort of prototype Raffles, right? In a way, okay. that he's he's a sort of gentleman thief. So yeah, it's it's a brilliant story. Well, he takes his hump off and then yeah. puts on a, a sort of fat, fat suit, suit. And, a, and a weird accent. <laughs> yeah. Is it meant to be Irish? I, I don't. Know. I'm not sure. I think it is. And then he sits in a chair and rotates through a wall into yes. next. That's door. the one where he lives next door to himself. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Would that we could. This point, Would that all we bets could. Are off, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. In the actual story, the desk doesn't rotate through the wall. That's yeah. just a visual thing. But yeah, he's got a door in a wardrobe and he walks. He goes into the wardrobe and walks through to next door. Oh. Not <laughs> so, Narnia then? Not Narnia, no. <laughs> no. Didn't get to see Mr Tumnus. 
Although he did dress but up yes, as Mr. That, Thomas that is... in one, yes. <laughs> but yeah, that is that is a weird one, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it sort of literally leaves you with your mouth open going, what on earth is going on yeah. here? But I love that about this series, that yeah. every now and then it will throw you a complete curveball. Mm. I've often said to you, nobody would be allowed to do something as bonkers as no. this these days. How are you with the anthology as a rule? In terms of yeah, I mean you watch number nine, don't you Lisa? Yes, inside number nine. Mm, yeah. yeah. I can fairly take them or leave yeah. them really. Mm-hmm. Um, some I will happily watch. Mm. Other shows that other people love mm. Mm. leave me fairly unmoved. So, But the anthology as a, as a structure you know, as a viewer and all the programmes not being the same every week. Is, is that something that in the modern era is less likely? I, I know now that shows like Fargo will have a different season that has a completely different story. That's a kind of modern idea. So you have a completely different cast. Or I think True Detective does that as well. And you just get a complete series with a whole new cast, whole new story. But this thing with the different episode, I know we have things going way back to things like Twilight Zone. And Twilight Zone was the anthology sci-fi series back in the 50s, in the 60s. But I just wondered, if do you find it satisfying as a viewer to think, oh, last week was a good one, oh, it's not them again? Or, or, or does, does it not bother you as much? I mean, we're sort of re-watching these. Mm. Mm. In my head, they sort of all occupy the same rough sort of time period, don't I? Mm. So I can't help wondering what would happen if one detective wandered into a story from another one? That's just the way my sort of brain works. Ah, you want mashups. It, it, yeah, <laughs> it, 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 it does feel like a fairly consistent world and you're just seeing a little bit of it mm. each week. Mm. So apart from the sort of more far-flung mm. ones sort of outside the UK, because mm. I said to you at one point, oh, imagine Sergeant Court walking mm. in at this point, yes. you know. Yeah. So, I mean, that was mostly because of Charles Morgan, who's in both right. that and this that okay. particular episode, isn't yeah. he? So. These are all set in more or less the same era, aren't they? I mean, that's probably why they're yeah. called the rivals of Sherlock Holmes. Mm. And there is that sense of fog and mystery and dark streets and typhoid. Well, it's and late Victorian or Edwardian, mm. depending on which introduction Yeah. They're mostly Victorian. Yeah. Yeah, sort of 75% mm. of them are Victorian. Mm. So I think the world itself of the series mm. is consistent enough. It's mm. not You're not like travelling through time mm. and space. It's the era of the horse, it's not the era of the motor car, mostly. Yeah, and I think they might even reuse a few sets every mm. now and then. I think, yeah. I think you know, some French windows turn wow. up yeah. in more than one story. Yeah, though you do get telephones popping up now and again. There's a couple of episodes where they've, I'll phone him, and you're like... Yeah. That's re- I mean, I'm not quite sure when the telephone was invented, but it's it's obviously quite early well, on. Well, Sergeant Cork's got a phone. Mm. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so is yeah. Raffles. Mm. So, yes. Yeah. Raffles got a really weird telephone, hasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, shall we wheel out the big guns now? Yes. The Horse of the Invisible. The Horse of the Invisible. Yeah. Now, this is one you've actually rewatched really before this recording, so yes. we may look into that in a bit more detail. An invisible horse haunts the Hiskin family on the eve of their daughter's wedding, but is it a genuine ghost? A cult detective, Karnaki, plunges into eerie shadows of gaslit uneasiness to discover the truth. Uh, with Donald Pleasance, Tony Steedman, and Michelle Detrice, another yeah. Philip Mackey one. Yeah. Um, technically, I would say it's not the eve of her wedding until the story, because she's engaged, yeah. but they're not actually planning to marry immediately until uh, um, Karnaki actually su- suggests it to, to try and circumvent the whole. These sleeve note writers, you can't trust them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's extraordinary because even when you get to the end of the episode mm. 
and you find out who's done it, mm. you still don't quite know what's going on, mm. do you? Yeah, it's it's quite sort of difficult to decide mm. on that one. Interesting career choice, the occult detective. Where do we think that comes from? Well, is, isn't there a, a fair bit of interest in the occult in the sort of late Victorian mm. period? Yeah. Because it's, it's all your yeah. table wrappers mm. and things, Table wrappers isn't it? in them. Well, I mean, the so, Conan Doyle himself was a bit of a, a one for the uh, for that sort of thing. So I suppose, yeah, it's just I'm just interested where you know somebody wakes up and thinks, ah, my character's going to be an occult detective because it is again, it's quite niche, it's quite separate to a mm. certain extent. It's still a detective, but but Car- Karnacki's got what's it, the Electric Pentacle ah, that yeah. he puts around Michelle de Trees. Yeah. So it's that that fusion of mysticism and science. And science, early science. Yeah. Well, that's Victorian era for you, isn't it? Because electricity and radio is all terribly exciting and new and. You know, when we got to radio, yeah, have we? But we've got people playing around in sheds with all sorts of wires and things, and and all sorts of potions and all sorts of fluids and gases. And the modern age is born out of this crucible. So I suspect it's kind of, it's all part of that excitement, that white heat of technology that's bubbling up in Victorian society, really. But to to get Donald Pleasance playing yeah. Karnacki is, yeah. I think, because he's he's quite a well known sort of film actor at this point, mm. isn't yeah. he? Yeah. So 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 when's when's his Bond appearances? I think they're sixties, aren't they? Yeah. Because yeah. aren't they? Isn't he with Sean Connery? Sixty-seven. Yeah. Yeah. So this this I'm is seventy-one. Yeah. But yeah, so he's you know he can, he can probably command a fairly decent fee for himself. I yeah. would have thought. Well, he does a Columbo, doesn't he? A couple of years later. Yeah. So. Oh yeah, he's he's absolutely marvelous in that because. I really like Karnaki. Mm. So every time I see Donald Pleasance in something else, I'm I'm inclined to like the character, mm. even if he's not actually a very nice person. <laughs> he's not in the Columbo, mm. being the murderer. Because yeah. so. he's in uh, Great Escape as well, isn't he? And what's the other mm. one? He, 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 he crops up as sort of seedy little men in all sorts of crime dramas and detective dramas in the, in the 60s and 50s and 60s, really. Yeah. Because he goes to Hollywood, doesn't he? He, he makes stuff he in America, you know. So yeah, he's, he's obviously because he's in um, he's in Halloween, isn't mm. he? I think as the, as a psychiatrist. Yes, that's right. Going back to what I talked to, to you about last time with the, the Tudor history, he's in the film version of the Six Wives ah. of Henry VIII. He's Thomas Cromwell. Wow. So given that he's uh, adapted a fair few of them now, Philip Mackey, would you like to talk a bit about Philip Mackey? Well, Philip Mackey, I think I must have first come across him through Raffles. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. He's the sort of instigator, isn't he? The creator yeah. of Raffles mm. on, on television. Mm. He writes a cracking good yarn. He really does. Because mm. just going back to the Halls of the Invisible briefly, I've attempted to read the short story. Yes. And I, it's the only one I've really struggled with because for some reason I, I don't gel with the way it's written. Mm. But he's turned it into a really good, mm. concise, precise story, mm. isn't he? Yeah. So. I mean, it's, it's worth mentioning that the series editor is George Markstein. Wow. Ex of the Prisoners. Yes. Yeah. So you've got some heavyweight people working on this well, show. They're the big guns, aren't they, from the 60s? Certainly. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And Hugh Green is, is creative consultant. Yes. So uh, ex, ex, um, Ex-BBC. Yeah. yeah, BBC Director General. Mm. It's this thing, thing I say about, you know, television is perhaps considered throwaway mm. by some people. But these are important and talented people mm-hmm. yeah. working on what is almost a production line series mm-hmm. isn't mm-hmm. it that, you know we've, we've got so many to complete in a year mm-hmm. and we've got to keep churning them out 
but it's not to say that it's low quality. No. It really is very high quality. Do you think it holds up the Horse Invisible episode? Do you feel it's still a satisfying piece of television? Do you, do you think it benefits from this these newfangled colour cameras? Do you think it might work better in black and white? Do you think? Do you, do you got any sort of thoughts on it as a production? Um, it might have been interesting in black and white because mm. it does unfortunately suffer, and a lot of these suffer from day for night filming mm. where there's very obvious um, shafts of sunlight coming through the trees um, yeah you get very sunny nights mm. don't yeah. you <laughs> so they obviously don't have quite enough money to do actual night filming yes yeah i mean raffles is guilty of raffles that as well is very guilty mm. of that as well so but here we're at the absolute dawn of colour television in the UK anyway aren't we I mean this mm. is the first mm. couple yeah. of years I mean Thames has come in and it was basically black and white until the end of the 60s colour from 70 and and I just wonder is are they still designing for black and white or do you feel it I mean do you actually look at the screen and go yike or do you actually look at it and go no that works for me or does it not bother you at all when you're watching it's not day glow is it no it, it, it doesn't feel 70s I, no so. because it's not set in mm. the 70s because no. it's not a contemporary story they have to dress it and have it with the colours that would have been used mm. at that particular time. Yeah. So I think it benefits in the fact it's not present day. Because mm-hmm. if it was present day, it probably would be quite day glow. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't look like sort of Doom Watch cravats and shirts <laughs> and things like that. It's all a lot more subdued than that. It's just that I know sometimes we in this particular world we do have sort of a hard sell on you know, trying to tell people how good that sort of television or how enjoyable that sort of television is, and they look at it and they go, "Ugh," or or they see, you know, they see a smeary image or something, and they just and I just wondered, you know, if you had to absolutely sell this series to somebody, you would absolutely back it to the hilt, I'm sure. I mean, again, I would say that buy the DVD rather than watch it on any streaming service. Yeah. Not that you probably can, because no, DVD will give you a better picture quality mm. anyway. Yes. Um, I mean, yeah, there's some interesting choices mm. in the camera work sometimes. Yeah. I you mean, said this. By the second series, they seem to have got a camera crane. Yeah, right. so some very, very high shots. There's a lot of high shots in the second series. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah it, it is pushing the system, I think. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes that doesn't always work, no. you know. I, I, I well, doing a completely that, but... different setup every week, you know, for a different show, not got any standing sets. I mean, that that puts a lot of pressure on a production, doesn't it? Really, but it, but you would say it holds up. Yeah, I mean, you've got directors like Kim Mills, Jonathan Alwyn, wow. uh, Mike Vardy, mm. all mm. of whom are fairly sort of seasoned by this yeah. point, aren't they? Yeah. And I often say that you you spot the names and mm. all the other shows that they work on. Mm. And you can tell when you're going to get a weird camera angle from certain yeah. people, can't you? Yeah. So, yeah, and, and I think that keeps the viewer on their toes sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, that, I think these days people are afraid to just use certain camera angles. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's quite weird. You don't get sort of Dutch tilts and things like no. this. Whereas sort of somebody like Kim Mills mm. will come up with really weird mm-hmm. shot composition sometimes and yeah, I just like that originality. I think you're pushing the envelope, don't you, with multi-camera in the studio. You have to push the envelope, otherwise all the shows would look very similar if you're not careful. So yeah, I think you get these innovative directors coming along. Go, no, I'm going to try something different. I'm going to stick a mirror on the ceiling and and all that kind of thing. You know, you know, and it works. You know? I mean, one thing I would say is if if you were going to watch this and you've not watched this sort of thing before, just be prepared for the fact that there is a lot of use of CSO. Not all of it's successful. Mm-hmm. Most of the outside stuff, what little there is of it, is shot on video. Yeah. So it looks a bit flatter than it would. I was, I was surprised when we got some film yeah. at one point. Yeah, oh, yes, so. the CSO. We should say about that CSO railway station. 
Yeah. Where, where the train pulls in and half the um, the people waiting at the platform almost sort of disappear, <laughs> don't they? Because the smoke is like picking up the blue. Yeah, and that's part like of that, the charm but... of watching these things, though, isn't it? I mean, that's, I, I feel sometimes... I, again, the suspension of disbelief to a certain extent is, is what you need. If it happened on a stage in front of you, you know, I mean, obviously the people wouldn't disappear, but there would be different things. You have to stretch your mind sometimes to... Abs- and you're telling a story, aren't you? That's the point. You're telling a detective story and really all that other stuff shouldn't take you out of that next story is the case of the mirror of portugal yes. that's the return of horace dorrington mm-hmm. yes. peter vaughan again uh, this time with yeah. paul eddington popping paul eddington, up as well yes, with an accent is it an accent sort what of, sort of yeah. accent is um, it it's vaguely european I think, right? <laughs> vaguely that's, european. that's as far as i'm going to, to venture with it because i'm not entirely sure they were sure what he was doing it was just an accent <laughs> so mm. And then, then we've got Madam, is it Sarah or Sarah? I think it's Sarah. Madam right, Sarah. So. With Dixon Druce. Ah. Yes. And that one is, see, I don't really remember much about the character, mm. apart from he's a private detective. Mm-hmm. He's played by John Fraser. Right. Yeah. That's probably as much as I could tell you about him. The only thing that sticks out for that story is that it features not only Caroline John, but Roger Delgado as well. Oh, yes, that's right, yeah. Wow. So, actually, yes, there is a memorable scene there where somebody gets their tooth pulled out. Ah, Possibly. The no holds yeah. barred right. again. Yeah, you yeah. don't obviously see anything. It's sort of shot from the back, yes. but um, yeah. But the case of the Dixon torpedo, isn't it? No. Detective Jonathan Pride. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is Jonathan Pride, Jonathan Lisa? Jonathan Pride is a made-up character. And I know they're all made-up characters, but he's made up particularly for this series because this is a Martin Hewitt story. Oh, yeah. okay. Now, why they decided not to use Martin Hewitt in it, I don't know. But yes, they give Martin Hewitt a partner, Jonathan Pride, and put him into this story. And this is sort of an espionage story in mm. a way, isn't it? It's about some plans for a new torpedo that are stolen. You've got Cyril Shapps being Cyril shady. Ah, Shapps. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Yeah. somebody being Russian who's got forged rubles mm. or something. Yeah, yeah. And um, Derek Francis. Yeah. Oh, and James Bolam's in that one, isn't he? Mm. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. But yeah, this yeah. is about a torpedo, and torpedoes seem to be quite yes. big, big things. <laughs> I mean, this is the, the Bruce Partington plans again, isn't it? Yeah. It's, the fascinating thing to me is I've one of the things we've been watching recently is uh, Jim Alcoholic, no, Jim Alcalili doing his revolutions, which is kind of like his modern knockoff of James Burke. I don't know if you've seen any of those. But the fact of the actual how things came to be, like rocket science and what have you, through various nefarious goings on between scientists and what have you. So actually, I, I think it's a kind of real world problem put into literature form and i think that's that always makes them slightly more fast i remember this one i remember this one specifically because of the strange goings on in the duck pond <laughs> yes yeah there's a lot of people observing each other from bushes yes, bushes, yeah. <laughs> yes that's right yes. shadily yeah. But it's just this putting this prototype torpedo into the water. There's a few people at a park near us who have radio-controlled boats, and it just had exactly the same air for me. You know, it's one of those things. <laughs> but yes, now we've got the woman in the big hat. Okay, not the most exciting title. No, but uh, this is the first use of a female detective. Yes, which is Lady Molly, as played by L.V. L- L- Hale. Hale. Yeah, who had played Anne of Cleves. Right. In the Six Wives of Henry VIII. From a story by the Baroness Altsy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I've looked at the story and it's written by her assistant. So it's again using mm-hmm. the Holmes Watson, the formula that they use for, for that. Mm. So This is the Baroness who gave us the Pimpernel, isn't it? Silent Pimpernel, yes. yeah. Yeah. And you don't really get 
I mean, they do manage to flesh the character out, but unfortunately, in the story, because it's it's being narrated by somebody else, mm. and and unless it's a strong character like Sherlock Holmes, you don't really get a look at the person who is the sort of main character. I don't know. I, I find even with with Holmes to a certain extent that actually a lot of the certainly the longer stories he, they barely feature him. They sort of have to write him out so the plot can happen. And then bring him in at the end to be brilliant. And I suspect that's again, it's a, it's a kind of recognised structure. You know, I also love that title, "The Woman in the Big Hat," because it sort of has smacks of Bones about it. I don't know if you ever watched Bones, but Bones, they were always mm-hmm. the woman in, or the man in, or the child in. You know, it's, I like that mm-hmm. title structure. So that's quite fun. How do you feel that they pull off the uh, lady detectives, though, Lisa? Generally, um, pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I have to say, better than in some of the stories. Mm-hmm which I'll talk about a little bit more mm. when we get to, which hopefully we will get to shortly, the second series, mm. the last episode. Mm. But yeah, I, I think they do them pretty well. Yeah. They're not patronising so, writers, are they, when it comes to their women? I think that, no. that's that's the delight of it. Yeah. You know, it's not like, you know, oh, 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 she's only interested in big hats. But <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I, I, I do like that. I mean, because I think you get, but you get Judy Geeson in the second series, don't you? You do, yes. In the, um, the mysterious death of the underground world, mm-hmm. Bellway. Which is also by Baroness Oxley, mm-hmm. but she isn't actually the she is in it mm. that character, but the actual detective is a man in a cafe. Right, who plays with string, who they wisely exercise from the story because there is no point. Yeah, but next we've got the affair of the tortoise. Ah. Martin Hewitt is taken into the exotic world of voodoo. So that's Peter Barkworth. Peter Barkworth, mm-hmm. yeah. yes. Now, he returns, doesn't he, in the second series? He yeah, does. Yeah. yeah, late. No, he's in, he's in it in a few episodes' time. He's, but, he's in it at the, yeah. the end of oh, the episode. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. You were worried about the tortoise. I always worry you? about the tortoise, but the tortoise dies, so. Oh, right. <laughs> yes. It's not my favourite story. No. It's interesting, mm. but yeah, it's, it's, it's not one I would watch that many times. Mm. But would you. Uh, been able to tolerate an entire series of Martin Hewitt investigates or, or, be, or Ma- Peter Parker. He's, he's a good character. Mm. It's just that particular story is a little odd. Yeah. I think. Okay. Um, and again, as I said, he will pop up again in a few episodes. Sorry. So I'm just reading the description now when he takes him into the exotic world of voodoo, yeah. which is always <laughs> a topic that uh, I feel we should tread very lightly around in television in the 70s, quite frankly. Indeed, yeah. Yeah. But the one that follows, I think, is one of your favourites, isn't it? For the acting. The Assyrian oh, Rejuvenator. Yes. Oh, this is a classic con Donald... story, isn't it? Yes. It yeah, is. D- Donald Sindon and Michael Bates yeah. having an acting competition, yeah. isn't it? And Michael it? Bates wins. <laughs> yeah. If you ever want to see Donald Sindon getting out-fruited on the screen, <laughs> this is the one. Wow. Because, yeah, Michael Bates takes it up to 12 at this one, doesn't he? Yeah, Donald Sindon's turned it up to 11. Yeah. And Michael Bates just tops it. He yeah. does, yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculously silly. Because it's a swindle about this sort of company that sells you sort of rejuvenation products, yes. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You know, this fascinates me because these same stories pop up time and again there's actually a couple of episodes of NYPD Blue that use exactly the same plot I'm not even 100% sure but I vaguely remember it even turning up in in a Brooklyn Nine-Nine but I may be wrong about that but uh, I do remember Sipowitz sort of chasing after some con man who'd been basically put having these women put their heads in boxes and they were supposed to look younger so yeah just one of those things that every so often people go back to this source material and hopefully they think it's obscure enough but we think no no Thames we're doing this I have you know (laughs) <laughs> We're reaching the end of the series. Mm-hmm. There's two more to go. There's mm-hmm. the ripening ruby. Right. Yes. Do you 
you remember that one? Yeah, it's, that's got Robert Lang, ah, yeah. the detective, Lang. and Richard Herndl in, giving a slightly more understated performance than some other times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that one ends he's a bit Bert, oddly. Detective Bernard Sutton. Ah, yeah, he's a, he's a jeweller. Right. Yeah, not a very memorable name, no. I thought. Yeah, he's a jeweller, and and yeah, it's got, that one's got a bit of a downbeat ending, I think. Yeah. Don't, I don't know how much I should say, mm-hmm. but we're going to spoil the one in the next series, mm-hmm. but because that's the one is. It's, it's almost, I suppose it's a bit sort of new because the, the villain in it is, is a lady. Right. So, and she kills herself at the end of the episode right. to stop herself being taken to prison for fair. Right. So, yes, spoiler alert. But we are in a world of jewel thieves and, uh, and the like. So, you know, that's... Uh, yes. Yep, excellent. And finally? <laughs> the case of Laker absconded. Yes. So, Peter Barkworth is back, mm-hmm. as is Ronald Hines. Mm-hmm. Briefly. Briefly. Hewitt is called in when a bank clerk disappears and with him a sum of £15,000. Mm-hmm. Clues come thick and fast, which makes a good detective like Hewitt think twice. Mm. Remember that one or not? I do remember it. It's got Michael Cashman in it and Leslie Dwyer. All right. In a very brief role as, as a lost property clerk at a railway station, wow. which he makes the most of. But yeah, it's that's an interesting mm-hmm. one. It's it's not the Martin Hewitt ones. Martin Hewitt as a character is you know he's not eccentric. No. he's not a hunchback or anything like that. He's just a sort of steady detective. So he's perhaps not one of the more interesting ones. Mm-hmm. But Peter Barkworth makes the most of what he gets. Yeah, and Peter Barkworth is a good actor, so yeah. he makes the stories good. So that's the end of the first series from 1971. Nice encapsulated yes. 13 part, would you say? More hits than misses in that, generally? Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, there's enough variety, I think, yes. there. But it, as you say, Lisa, it's nice to have a couple of characters returning as yeah. well, just to sort of crystallise the worlds that they live in. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and, and in terms of actors and writers and everything, yeah, just top-notch stuff. Oh, so yeah. instead of getting a multitude of spin-offs, what we get two years later is The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes Series 2. Different rivals of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. The Mysterious Death on the Underground Railway. Mm. Yes. So that's Judy Geese and, and yeah. Richard Beckinsale. Some of the earliest crime fiction revolves around very well-known railway murders. Mm. I mean, none of these were based on true life. They were all fictional detectives, weren't they? Yeah. And on the cover, we get a different set of cameos on the cover, including the, the lovely Bernard Hepton, the lovely yep. Derek Jacobi. As a boy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he was that young boy there. And I do believe there's a morse in there as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah jo- John Thor's lurking about. Yes. We'll get to him shortly. Okay. But 500 Carrots, which we rewatched mm-hmm. last night, wasn't it? Yes. Um, that's Barry Keegan is Inspector Lipinski. Right. Lipinski. I think that's how you say it, yes. Uh, I think, have they spelled it right on there? I I'm have not no sure. idea. I don't know. But this is uh, Diamond in South ah. Africa with Martin Jarvis. Martin Jarvis as a wrong Wow. As a wrong Yeah. <laughs> and Richard Moran. Right. Giving the girliest scream. <laughs> oh, yes. Cap- Peel, which... Captain Zepp's in this. Yeah, yeah. Captain Zepp wow. gets zapped. <laughs> is that the one with the, yeah. the spear? Yes. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I suppose you would scream. Yeah like that but yeah it's a very high pitched um, I know but you're, you're not going to worry about oh did anybody hear that oh it was a bit high pitched can I do it again love <laughs> yeah. that's it you're toast you're deaded you're pinned against the door South Africa has realised in a studio in, in London does it work a studio a, and a quarry a sand pit of some a description pit, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah it's a very flat floor wherever this town is yeah. ah, and everything's all a bit close together isn't it it is it's very close together <laughs> yeah you could practically just step from one building to another. Right. Yeah. 
So, yeah, they've had to cut a few corners, yeah. I think, yeah. on the set. But yeah. you're not really watching the scenery in no. this, are you? No. Well, not when you've got Patrick Barr in it. No. <laughs> best acting. <laughs> but, yeah, all, all good stuff. Mm-hmm. Cell 13. Professor Van Dusen yeah. finds himself alone in the condemned cell of the country's most heavily secured prison. Yes. So it's Douglas Wilmo trying to break out of jail, basically. Yes. Now, this is one of the most famous... Cell 13 is one of the most famous locker room mysteries there is, from what I remember, mm. upon which many are based since then. And it also features Nicholas Courtney. Oh, yeah, it's a tiny bit from Nick Courtney, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah, it's his sort of journalist friend. Yeah, that's... I mean, we, we didn't... We chose not to watch rewatch that one as part of the rewatch this mm. time, but we will watch it at some point mm. soon because it is a good story. Do you think it's ingenious enough, the solution? I think so. I'm trying to remember... What, yes, it's, I'm trying to remember exactly what it is without spoiling mm. it. But there is a sort of ta-da moment after he's... There yeah. is, yeah. As I said, he's, Douglas Wilmer is great. He's obviously relishing the fact mm. that he gets to do a Sherlock Holmes-ish performance, yes. but dialing it up again by five yeah (laughs) because he's very eccentric isn't he with his pince-nez and his wild hair i think the lock room mystery is an interesting one because sometimes they work better in the mind they work better on the page than they do visually and i'm always fascinated because when we got years later to something like jonathan creek it was sort of worked out how to do it for television by then just try to work out do you think it works as a television play Generally. I think so. Mm. Yeah, yeah I, I was sort of intrigued. Yeah. And the test is, does it keep your attention? Yeah, that's the, that's the thing I'm asking, really. It, it definitely does. I mean, you, yeah. you're not sitting there going, oh, groan at the end of it. You know, it's, it's <laughs> a real proper solution, properly done. Disc two, The Secret of the Magnifique, with the aid of two ex-convicts, Laxworthy, an elderly detective. Is he that elderly? Not really. I wouldn't have said he was elderly. Manages yeah. to ensure the security of the plans for the French Navy's first torpedo. Another torpedo. Yeah. So yeah. that's Bernard Hepton, Christopher Neen, John Nettleton. And Neil... Neil McCarthy. McCarthy, yeah. yeah. Mm. This one, there is the point that I did uh, sort of wince a bit, mm. and you get this a bit with sort of detective stories, where Bernard Hepton's got a moustache on. Oh. And yeah. he's thus completely unrecognisable <laughs> as the character he really is. Yeah, I, I and did. He takes his moustache off, and his housekeeper is surprised mm. it's him. I did read a review of it that says the fact that because obviously he he's disguised as a cabbie yeah. to pick up the two newly released convicts. Mm. The fact that he's in the title sequence seconds before as the detective kind of gives it away. <laughs> but yeah, it's an interesting story. Yes. I mean, I think possibly this one has the potential to do... I don't know if there are other stories. I'm not looking I can imagine it. them having adventures. But yeah, there's yeah. potential for more adventures, more sort of adventures for these three characters mm. at some point. So... So the absent-minded coterie, Monsieur Valmont, France's greatest amateur detective, ah. helps the police crack a counterfeiting gang with yes. Charles Gray. Charles Gray in his accent. Ah, Charles Gray Clouseau. doing an accent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I said to you this morning, no, I do wonder whether Agatha Christie had read this story not long before she influenced Poirot, because there are a lot of things that uh, they share in the fact that they both think... I know Poirot is a great detective. But Eugene Valmore says he's a great detective, and I'm not sure how great he is, because hmm. he only gets outwitted by a lady <laughs> at the end of the episode. A lady? A lady, yes. So, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing, and Charles Gray's entertaining to watch. Mm-hmm. It's nice to see him. I mean, obviously he plays Mycroft Holmes, doesn't he? I think in the Jeremy Brett mm, he does. Sherlock Holmes. Yes. But it's nice to see him playing a nice character, because he's quite well known for playing villains, mm. isn't he, yeah. uh, Charles Gray? So. 1973, though, I suppose, by this stage, you've got the women's movement is, is getting some traction by this stage. I think you've got to at least tip the nod 
haven't you in a series like this? <laughs> it's just it's quite funny because he's he's all sort of twinkly and, and I am the great Eugene Valmont and she's never Ch- heard of him. He's charming the word. Ah. Yes. Yes. Excessively so, possibly. So, so on to the sensible action of Lieutenant Holst. Yes. A quietly ambitious Copenhagen policeman is involved in an international situation when a Russian countess claims her brother-in-law plans to kill her. John Thor, Philip Maddock and Catherine Schell. And wisely, he chooses not to do an accent. No. (laughs) Just to play in his own accent. Because sometimes accents are a little bit dodgy, as we've heard previously. So this is basically, this is Nordic noir, really. Mm. Yeah. 30 years early. We did ask Catherine Schell about this when we saw her at a convention a few years back. Mm. I think she had some nice memories. Yeah, I think she liked doing it. Yeah. Yeah. This is kind of the road not travel, because I'm trying to work out whether this would have been made between Regan and the Sweeney or before Regan, because it's kind of like almost like the last hurrah of John Thor playing the nice copper. He does a nice copper in Strange Report. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. It does a sort of understated copper, and then fairly shortly afterwards you get the Sweeney, and I don't know, it, it's a very understated performance in this, isn't it? It's a very sweet performance in many ways. He's particularly law-abiding, isn't he? He, he does things by the book. Yeah. So... But yeah, it's, it's an interesting, an interesting idea, and the fact that you never quite know who is the villain in that mm. one, whether mm. it's Philip Maddock or it's Catherine Show, mm. it's it's left a bit open ended, isn't it? Who's his missus in that one? Is uh, it Jackie? No, she's in Dixon Torpedo. Oh right, yeah, I can't remember who it is, but yeah. Oh, Virginia Stride. But you feel that the idea of a, a sort of thoughtful, understated John Thor police character might have some potential somewhere down the line? Do you think maybe? Well, yeah, I suppose it's it's almost a proto morse apart from the fact he doesn't drink that much. No. Yeah, in I mean, Denmark, even morse, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even morse doesn't always play it by the rules. Though, so you know. Right. But here's another one that we just rewatched: the yeah. superfluous finger. Okay. Yeah. Why does a beautiful young woman ask a London surgeon to sever one of her fingers? Professor Van Dusen agrees to think his way to a solution. Mm-hmm. Why do they put "think" in quotes? I don't know. I don't but is impeded by the fact that the lady is shot dead, in quotes, before the amputation. She's not shot dead, she's strangled. Well, I know. Uh, Douglas Wilmer, Lawrence Payne and Veronica Strong. Yes. See, I, I had to look up after we watched this if Lawrence Payne had lost his eye by this. And he had, well, not lost his eye, lost his sight. And he had, because that occurs in the late 60s. I think by the time you get to two doctors, he's actually got a false eye. Yeah. Possibly. This has got uh, William Mervyn in it as oh, well. Oh, yeah. Being... Yeah, absolutely, yes, off the scale mad, bonkers. <laughs> and Wallace Eaton as well from um, Up Pompeii. All right, okay. as the butler. Yeah, so, yeah, with, with stick on sideburns, doesn't he, um, <laughs> William Mervyn? But yeah, presumably they don't get sweated off quite like uh, John Stratton's might. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> those uh, those sideburns have got a life of their own. They're moving further and further down his face. <laughs> <laughs> we like a bit of facial hair, though. We like a bit of fake facial hair. It uh, adds to the charm. Yeah, some work better than others, but yeah, they don't, it, it's not too bad. It's but yeah, that is an interesting one because that is the one that, that we got two thirds through it last night, and Professor Van Dusen finds himself in some sort of dungeon affair, and you're like, oh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> just when he falls through the floor at one point yeah. it's like he's in some yeah, sort of pantomime you're almost in like a doggy noise yeah. don't you <laughs> I think the next couple we, I can't really remember much about them but there's anonymous letters yeah. with Ronald Lewis Michael Aldridge and Nicola Padgett mm-hmm. yeah. and the Moabite cipher with Barry Ingham Peter Salas and Julian Glover yes I remember more about the, the second one because mm-hmm. that's again that's that's Dr Thorndike again 
and it's yeah, it's all to do with anarchists. I think. Okay. I think Julian Glover's an anarchist, right? And he, he wants to blow somebody up. Mm-hmm. Or Has he got something. a big fizzy bomb or something? <laughs> Most anarchists would have at this point. And but, yeah. dramatized and directed by Reginald Collins. So. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, it's Secret of the Fox Hunter. William Drew of the Foreign Office investigates an unusual crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, Derek Jacobi and Peter Arn. Yeah. Pre Claudius. Yes. Pre Claudius, yeah. And there's a scene in this one that always makes me laugh. Oh, yeah. Where yeah. they have to go to France. Yes. So, how do you, when you cut to a location? You don't cut to a location. Well, you, you cut to a room. <laughs> how do you show it's French? Studio. You yes. just put up a big French flag <laughs> over the bed. Yeah. yeah. Basically, you need a man with uh, on a bicycle with onions around his neck <laughs> cycling through the front of the fray. Right. Just to... Now, that sticks as a dot green. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, Denise Coffrey is in that one as well, yeah. isn't she? Being very small. Being very small, yes. It's, it must be quite hard to get two shot of her and anybody else, to be honest. But do you want to blow the ending of this yeah, one? Yeah, this one is... It's weird because you're watching it because there's a poisoning. Lisa Harrow gets poisoned in it. And then Derek Jacobi's character gets, William Drew gets poisoned. And you think they've saved him and he sees off the villain, doesn't he? Yeah. And then he dies. And then he carks it. And you're like, oh, okay. (laughs) That series isn't happening then. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Very yeah. old. I mean, it's it's great. You must have had great fun because you got to do lots of rolling around in the bed, shrieking, thrashing. Yeah. So. Yes, I'll do it, but I won't do a series. He has to die <laughs> at the end, otherwise I'm not doing it. It's, it's blooming Rog Blake all over again. I'm telling you. <laughs> the looting of the specie room. Yes. The RMS Oceanic. Well, that's a heist, isn't it? That's a heist. We we like a, a heist. New world record for the fastest Atlantic crossing is carrying a fortune in gold bullion. Mr. Horrocks, Ship's Purser, and Amateur Sleuth. Uh, he's not really an amateur sleuth. With Ronald Fraser, Gene Marsh, and Michael Cash. Yeah, I'm just going to say he's not an amateur sleuth. He's forced into looking into it on pain of losing his job. Yeah. So it's not like he's an amateur detective before this. This sounds a little bit like a, a whodunit plot, really, doesn't it? It's... It is a bit, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you sort of yeah, you do almost expect to cut back to John Pertwee. <laughs> <laughs> Which always adds something to a programme, certainly. Maybe yeah. that's where they got the idea from for, for the <laughs> for who done it. I don't know. But you tracked down a copy of the book of that the other day. Yes, didn't we've you? got two copies actually. Okay. We've got a reading copy and, and a looking at and an copy. old copy. And an old copy that you can't look at too closely because the pages will fall out. But you've done that for many of these shows, haven't yeah. you? You've tracked down books yeah. galore. Yeah. And Ronald Fraser? Ronald I see I again I read the review this on the internet where they said Ronald Fraser wasn't very good right. and I would disagree with that because I think he's having great fun mm. playing this part but you're very much on the side of Mr Horrocks oh, aren't gosh, you because yes. everybody yes. else is posh and annoying yeah, posh and horrible mm. yeah yeah. well I mean yeah, those, those two tend to go together in life don't they let's be honest and to me in a way it feels like a Ted Willis story where the person that should get their comeuppance doesn't get their comeuppance mm. so this is Ian Kennedy Martin of course adapted it is. It's and it's. I mean, it's. It's yeah. It's a. It's a good story. I quite enjoyed it. But yeah, it's. I don't know because there are there are a whole lot of uh, Mr. Horrocks stories because the, the writer of this one wrote this captain of the ship and then he'd pick different members of the crew to write about as well. Oh. And there's a whole book of short stories with Mr. Horrocks. And I don't know if they're all mysteries or they're just all adventures mm. that he has. But yeah, this is uh, so. C. J. Cunliffe Hine wrote. Yes. Yeah. So. On to the mystery of the Amber Bees. Mm-hmm. Who murdered Mrs. Arryford? The answer is obvious to Detective Sergeant Grubber. There's a good name. <laughs> but not to Hagar the Gypsy. Yeah. To her, feelings are more reliable than facts. And she sets all her intuition 
to work to solve the case. I'm trying to work out who this Mrs. Harry Ford is. <laughs> uh, starring Joss Ackland and Sarah Kestelman. Right. Yes. Who I didn't really know, but I thought she was bloody good. She is very good. Yes. This one really works as a television episode. Mm-hmm. Less so as less a book. Less so as a, as a short story. Oh, okay. For reasons I'm not going to go into, but let's just say it involves some minstreling. That's all I'm right. going to say. By one of the characters. Oh my god! I would hope that when they looked at it, even at the time, they went, "We can't do this." Yes, you can almost hear the production team reading the book and thinking, "Oh no, we can't do that," and yeah. crossing huge chunks of it out, <laughs> and and changing it, and a just bit. rewriting uh, it. Yeah. And thank God, would that there was more yes. of that. <laughs> but she's a really interesting character mm. because there's nothing made of the fact really that she's she's a gypsy mm. that uh, other than that she uses her feelings and that she's quite intelligent yes. so this is kind of like mentalist using people's personality traits to work things out and actually just being very intuitive of, of people's personalities we're not trying to say this is actually a second sight detective are we no in fact that sort of cliched thing about oh it's, it's women's feelings mm. actually does her a disservice mm. as she's got a bloody good mind because mm. she can remember the serial number of the, of the bank, the, no. the bank right yeah. and she's actually quite a good i'd say she's make a good analytical chemist mm. when she's sort of looking at some talcum powder okay. and, and mm. stuff. Mm. So, yeah, it's not just all feelings okay. and no. influence. It is actually intelligence and observation, yeah, which is any... what any good detective should have. Mm-hmm. So. so in May 1973, the, the second series concludes with oh. the missing oh. QCs. <laughs> Would you like Ending to tell us a, high, a little bit about the missing QC? Oh, Lisa, oh, you've got yeah. Jack May. Yeah. You've got Charles Lloyd Pack. Yeah. You've got Paul Dark. You've yeah. got Gordon Gostello. Gordon Gostello. <laughs> John Barron. A young Robin Ellis who's got no chance against the rest of the actors. Uh, He's got to play it completely straight. There's so much He's fruit so- on the screen. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. It's like a bowl. <laughs> biggest, biggest bunch of bananas you've ever seen. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's just a point in this episode. Though. Yeah. I feel, though, that this is one of your actual favourite pieces of television of all time. You seem to yeah. sit down yeah. and watch it quite often, from what I can gather. Yeah, John Barron turns round. He doesn't do- turn round. Somebody he's rotated, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. And they've done something to him. Yeah. And all he's got to act with is his eyes, yes. basically, right. isn't it? Yeah. So, and he's still over the top. So, it's amazing. So what's the plot of this? Tell us a bit about the plot of this. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a trial, isn't there? Yeah, there's a trial. It's actually got nothing to do with the trial. No. But they get an expert witness in. Right. Who's a... He's a sort of psychiatrist, isn't yeah. he? Or a psychologist or whichever. And he's basically a bit of a mad scientist. <laughs> yeah. He's a sort of a bit of a Victor well, Frankenstein. Well, it goes into gothic horror, doesn't it? It does. At some point halfway through, you go into pure hammer. Wow. You've got the thunder and the lightning going on. <laughs> yeah. There's There's operations. And, and screaming people. Madmen in, like, mm. locked in the underground. And... Yeah. It's it hard is, to describe, yeah, it isn't it? It has to be seen to be believed, yeah. that one. But you'd say okay. lots of beautifully yeah. understated performances leading to a perfect oh, hour yeah. of television. Yeah. Yes, okay. Yes. <laughs> so this is the end for... Why do you think we didn't get mm. a third series? Of... I don't know if they ran out of stories. Yeah. Or... I think everybody was knackered. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you think, oh, God, we can't do any more. Oh, yeah, maybe they just... 
didn't get the ratings for the second series that they got for the first. Yeah, I mean, some some of this is often due to sort of changes of personnel, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Sort of higher up. I don't. I really don't know the history of, of ten. But looking at it as a whole, do you feel that there are series in there that could have led to series that didn't? Or yeah, there's at least two or three of the detectives. Mm. Certainly, Max Caradoss. Mm. Yeah. you could have done a series with. You could have done a, a series with Donald Pleasance's character, Kanaki. Yeah. You could probably have done a series with Peter Barclay's mm. character. It would have been a more conventional mm. series. Mm. And possibly the Simon Kahn one as well, mm. in, in the sort yeah. of raffles. Mm. I mean, I, I would say that television keeps returning to the same detectives, yes. doesn't mm. it? It keeps returning to Holmes and, and Miss brackets marple it's the yeah. power of the brand christie brand as, as much as anything i would say that i find it sometimes disappointing mm. that none of these detectives have ever really been returned to no probably because and, and i'll say this that people who work in television don't know the history of television mm. yeah do we feel though that this because this is 1973 do we feel that sort of television itself was changed does it feel an old-fashioned type of program for 1973 because television suddenly became quite high octane, didn't it? In the seventy four, seventy five, it's there's a, there was a definite sea change in television, and you just think that maybe this just felt like looking back rather than looking forward. Or you know, I just I'm just really trying to get to the bottom of why we think that there might not have been any more, or there might not have been a series spin off of any of these. I think once you get the Sweeney into the picture. Hmm. Everything changes and everybody wants a police series like mm. the Sweeney. Mm. And you stop doing the sort of mm. slower, more character-based mm. things. More thoughtful stuff, Yeah, you perhaps, want yeah. action. Well, again, it's interesting because, I mean, it's another 10 years before we get the Granada Sherlock Holmes. It's another five years after that before we get the Poirot, which, mm. again, going back to the thoughtful detective. But also in, in that intervening time, while Holmes is on, the Granada Holmes is on, Morse arrives, and suddenly that thoughtful two-hour television drama becomes the norm, and suddenly all the detective series want to do this two-hour version. Mm. Even Sherlock Holmes does a bit of that towards the end. So it is interesting how it goes in phases, and you do kind of think that Granada was scrambling around for thinking, oh, what we should really do is a big-budget Sherlock Holmes, and you're thinking, no, actually, a big-budget Karnaki is what we want to see. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for that today. No pleasure. It's been a pleasure to talk to you both again, and to rattle through two series of a show which we would recommend generally speaking we would recommend yes. without question yes, yes definitely is there anything else you wanted to add about the rivals before we sign off no, just give it a watch mm. yeah. and probably the, our approach of pick one based on the actor or, <laughs> yeah. or the yeah. plot is probably the way to go yes you don't have to do it in order no. do you think Karnaki is your favourite of, of them all Karnaki is probably your favourite it's isn't probably it? mine yeah, yeah I'm very fond of Max Caradoc is it just yeah. because it's mad yeah. bonkers or is there just something about the episode that just makes you go yeah that's the one for me I just like Max Caradoc's character Brilliant. he's, he's mm. a sort of a charming sort of urbane kind so I, of character. I did say to you last night I, I really wish I could pull off acting like Van Dusen a bit more <laughs> with sticky up hair yeah. and being patronising to stupid people. So, <laughs> Just go shopping, mate. Just go shopping. But yeah, <laughs> I, I, I wish I was brave enough to do Indeed. that in real life. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Right. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time. I will speak to you again soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Many thanks to my guests Lisa and Andrew for joining me this week to investigate another obscure detective series. My thanks as ever also to everyone here at Fab Radio International and of course to all of you for listening wherever you are. Until next time, I have been Martin and this has been Vision on Sound. Goodbye for now and take care.